Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone, and is a project of EEI, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Viator, Vice President of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Well, welcome everyone. Today on The Current, we have the great pleasure of being joined by former congressman, former CIA agent walking around in back alleys, former member of the House Select Intelligence Committee, Congressman Will Hurd, to talk about ransomware and issues that happened in and around the Colonial Pipeline attack. So welcome, Will. Thanks for giving us a little bit of time. Well, I appreciate that. It's always good to talk to you about these important issues that are getting, you know, even more and more complex as the years go on. So explain it to us. What on earth is ransomware and how common are ransomware attacks? So ransomware attacks are first and foremost, it's a hacker got somebody to do something on their networks that locks it up. You you basically encrypt the data on your computer. So you can't access anything on your computer unless you go to some site that tells you to put in money. A lot of times it's some kind of cryptocurrency. And then they give you the, the key that's going to allow you to decrypt your files that are on your computer. Most of the time, ransomware starts with usually some kind of phishing scam. So somebody's sending an email to somebody and somebody's clicking on it. So, so rule number one, do not click on links from people you do not know. One way to check that is, if the email comes and the person and someone you've interacted with before and their name doesn't populate in the two line, don't click on it, okay? If you know you didn't buy anything at Apple or Walmart, then don't click on it. So what happens is you click on something like that. The hacker then explores your networks and figures out a way that they can possibly lock up your system. So that's a base. Now, the more sophisticated attacks, may not even require a user to do something. It takes advantage of known vulnerabilities or sometimes unknown vulnerabilities of the digital infrastructure, And but it's the same process. They encrypt all your data and they prevent you from getting access to it unless you give money in which they will give you the key that can decrypt your files. Fair enough. Do we have a sense of what happened in the Colonial Pipeline attack? Brad, you might have some more specific information on this, but my understanding, it was the business systems that were the focus of the attack. And so when I mean business system, and I, I separate IT systems, right? You know, your email systems, how you interact with the rest of the world, some of your public facing IP addresses, from your control systems, right? Sometimes it's called OT, operational technology. And so my understanding is that it wasn't the systems that monitor the fuel going through the pipelines. It was the business in that was encrypted, which prevented Colonial from being able to operate. Now, Colonial did shut down their control systems as a precaution in the event that the attackers potentially went from their business systems to the operational systems. That was a precaution that was taken. And honestly, if a attacker is able to jump from your business systems, your emails, things like that, your accounting software, you know, from some things that may be accessed to your website, if they're able to jump from those business systems to your control systems, that's a really terribly 
design digital infrastructure because usually you have those things that keep dams running or if you have some big machine on a factory floor that is operated by systems that are not connected to the internet are not connected to your business processes hearing or reading what I have about the colonial pipeline attack and this attack being on the business system side, I guess then the assumption I'd make is that the halting in movement there was more of a precautionary move because there were people that were on the system. I mean, do you think that sounds accurate? Yeah, that's my understanding of what happened. And look, in 2009, that's when I first ran for Congress and was unsuccessful and joined a strategic consulting firm. And we helped build a cybersecurity company. And so what we basically did is break into banks, steal their money, and show those banks how we did it, right? And we always got in. And one of the things that, you know, you learn at back then, back in the 09 timeframe, a lot of these industrial control systems were run by software. They're operating system, right? Windows is an operating system. That's the guts of how your computer works and all your applications and software, how it interacts with the various things. And those operational control systems, the operating systems of those industrial control systems, excuse me, were such old software. They, they were designed with old programming language that like seven people in the world knew the, the, how an operate, one of those operating systems worked that would run you know, a, a power station. Now, a lot of these have switched to Windows or a Unix platform. And so the number of folks that understand and know how these industrial control systems, the, 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 what the operating systems are, is in the millions of people. And so you've increased that surface area of attack because now more people know how the guts of the machine works. Now, you should have a, a firewall between those business processes, like the back end, right? The processes from the operational entities and units. And if you don't, and they shouldn't be connected to the internet, a lot of times people have some sensor and they want to be able to update that sensor remotely. That increases a, a potential thing that can be attacked. You know, we sometimes act like this is a black swan event, black swan being something so unique, it's unlikely to happen. But if it does happen, it's going to be disastrous. We saw the Russians, you know, turn off the lights and impact the utilities systems in Ukraine. We've seen this colonial attack a couple of, I think it was two or three months ago. You had the thing in Florida where the water treatment plant, somebody broke in, tried to poison the water. Thank God some dude that was on shift that night saw it and was like, uh, I don't think it's supposed to be doing that. You look in, in Mumbai, India, about two months ago, the Chinese government probably turned the lights off in Mumbai in response to a border skirmish in northern India, southern China. So this is happening. It's happened before. It's something we have to be prepared for. And it shows that we have to be more resilient. Everybody in the utility space and some of the other spaces say, oh, we always have redundancy. Well, we saw in Texas with the bad weather that we didn't have the redundancy we needed. We saw with this colonial pipeline that we don't have the redundancy we need. And we got to be prepared because we're only going to see these attacks increase. You know, it's weird 
for me to say it this way as someone who advocates on behalf of utilities uh, in a corporate environment, but you know, there's certainly need for regulation here. And I know on the electric sector, there already is regulation on a lot of the stuff on the cyber side. And it looks like more of that's going to happen on the gas side of the equation. But my suspicion is just like you said, in the wake of Texas, in the wake of this attack, in the wake of that water system attack down in Florida, regulators are certainly going to be paying attention to what's going on here and trying to figure out how to update rules. And it frankly reminds me of a piece of legislation that you worked on with the Congress about just updating the government's IT infrastructure. It almost seems like we're in this time period where it's time to invest in that stuff and make sure we're ready for tomorrow. No, you're right. And let's start with the basics. So the, the question we have here in Colonial specifically, and I don't, this might be known, I don't know. Was this what allowed these hackers to gain access into their systems, a zero day vulnerability? And what do I mean by zero day vulnerability? Whatever software people are using, you, you get, sometimes you have to update your software, patch your software. Everybody says that because they found something that a bad guy or gal can take advantage of. And so was this access created through a known vulnerability that should have been fixed? Let's go to Uncle Sam, the OPM hack. That hack that happened could have been prevented because there was known vulnerabilities and people had come in and said, hey, you need to fix these things. You look at the credit agency that got hacked a number of years ago. I'm always worried about saying the wrong name. because they Equifax? Was it Equifax? Yeah. It was Equifax. So again, that one loses known vulnerabilities. Now, when you look at SolarWinds, you know, that attack took advantage of something that people didn't know existed before, okay? And, and so that's a higher level of sophistication. But if you're not doing the basics, you're going to get in trouble. And what was always fascinating to me when I was with Fusion X, a cybersecurity company, we would always, like day one, we would go in and talk to all the senior people within the IT system. Are you doing this? Are you doing that? They're like, yeah. And you're like, wow. You're like, this is best. You're best in show. You're doing all the things perfectly right. And me and Matt DeVoe, the CEO of the company, would go home that day and, and over dinner be like, man, tomorrow's going to be hard if they're doing all these things they say they're going to be, they're doing. Then the next day, we pop open the hood and get in within 15 minutes. We've taken over the systems, right? And so you have to test your own system because the reality of what you're doing, what you think you're doing versus the reality is always different. And this is hard. The bad guys are sophisticated. If I have enough time and money, I'm getting in. So can you detect an attack? Can you quarantine uh, that attacker? And can you kick them out? Those are the kinds of questions everybody needs to be asking. It talks about a complication here between coordination of the private sector and of government. You used to be a spy. You used to get information from other governments and learn about threats, right? I'm just a private citizen that works for an electric company and maybe I manage grid operations. So there's a gap here that we've got to fill. You know about a risk and you know about a risk that's classified. I don't know about a risk, but I operate a system that has an impact on millions of people. I know there's been a lot of work to close that gap and bring us together, but it's still complicated to figure out how we're going to get that coordination, right? Yeah. So first off, technically, I was a spy master, not a spy, but hey, we'll let that one slide, Brad. I'll boil that question down as what is the role of the federal government helping with this? There, there are some times when our intelligence services may be aware of vulnerabilities that they are taking um, advantage of 
for the betterment of national security. The number of times, and, and I don't know, I'm not saying that this doesn't exist, but I don't know of cases where the federal government knew of something and didn't try to make sure that same thing was that the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians were able to take advantage of that in the United States. So I don't know if I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but, but I don't know of that. The NSA should be defending the intelligence community and the military. That's in defense. Cyber command, responsibility is offense, right? Department of Homeland Security is supposed to be the belly button and coordination between the federal government and, and, and actually DHS is supposed to be the helping to defend, assisting, that's an important word, assisting to defend the .gov space, right? So everything outside the military and the intelligence community. And DHS through CISA, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, should be helping and providing support to the private sector. Now, you don't want the federal government being in a world where they're defending the private sector. But let's say you're that grid operator and I get hacked, who do I call? Right? And so it might be Secret Service, it might be FBI, and you know, it's unlikely to be some DHS rep. That is incident response. There's a step before incident response of information sharing, operational collaboration. There's entities that are growing, commercial sector that are providing this kind of insights. There's a company called Recorded Future that provides very specific level of digital intelligence to help defend your infrastructure. But that sharing between the federal government and the private sector needs to improve. Those that are grid operators and dealing with this, or those that are living at in banks, you know, they have a better idea of where the attacks are going to come because they're seeing it every single day. Can we feed that into the intelligence community and have the intelligence community go and collect that? But you got to defend yourself. You got to follow best practices. Your employees have to be trained. Anybody who's not taking that yearly cybersecurity training, their pay should be docked or they should not be allowed to get bonuses. So the employees have a responsibility as well to make sure they're following good digital hygiene. So is that it? That's the answer of how we solve for ransomware attacks on the one hand, follow good digital hygiene, test it and test it again, figure out where you can attack from all angles. I mean, are there other things? Have backup systems, right? Go to this kind of concept of zero trust within your network. Make sure you're using all the tools that are potentially available. Sometimes a small entity may not be able to pay for those. Make sure your software is always patched. Now, is that going to be enough to defend against a nation state? And the answer is not always. But can you build a network where you can ID, when you can see a threat, quarantine and kick them off? And sometimes kicking them off may require. Um, additional support. And when it comes to critical industries, then that's where DHS, FBI, other entities can come in. You have a long storied resume. One thing I didn't mention at the beginning, computer scientists by training, like the nerd factor with Congressman Wilherd is off the charts. How now in your post-congressional life are you putting the intersection between national security and policy into one piece and continuing to defend the homeland? What's fascinating is I never thought I would be like this technology guy. My degree was in computer science. I thought I was going to go work for IBM. I was going to be in Big Blue, being a programmer. And then I met this dude at A&M that was a former CIA officer and told the most amazing stories. And I was like, I'm in. I want to do that. And I went there, went to the CIA right out of university. And because when I was in India and Pakistan, I had surveillance, and sometimes it was the, the their equivalent of the FBI. Other times it was terrorist organizations. Other times it was third country 
And so you have to learn about your digital footprint and what you're putting out there and how people can take advantage of it. And so that was your basic counterintelligence. So it was an interesting experience to get that. And then how do you communicate with people that are giving you secrets and putting their lives on the line and making sure you're communicating with them in a way that the bad guys can't get access to it. So you learn some of those tactics, techniques, and procedures of protecting your own combo. And then when I was with the consulting firm, our clients were asking us, you know, can you help with cybersecurity? And we were all former CIA officers. So it was like, we know a guy, right? And we helped start a cybersecurity company. And they're like, hey, Will, you have a CS degree. You help build that company. And so it's like, what the hell do I know about, pardon my language, what do I know about you know, cybersecurity? But then I got to learn that with Fusion X and, and, and Matt DeVoe. And so fast forward, I went in Congress. Jason Chaffetz from Utah was the head of the Oversight and Government Reform Committee. He was like, hey, we have a cybersecurity subcommittee that we want you to run. And I didn't have the heart to tell him at the time, you know, I can't, I walk him to do that. I never talked about being on OGR. And then I talked to somebody whose names uh, rhymes with Brad Viator and Stony Burke. And they say, yeah, no, you're going to take that. And I never expected to be someone talking about these things. But now what I do is I talk about, in Congress, I was in a policy setting talking about technology. Now I'm in a technology environment talking about policy and advising companies how to improve their widgets and work better with the federal government, but how do you protect and defend against a nation state actors? You talked about regulation earlier. The government is too slow to respond to the innovation cycle. And so those innovators have to start thinking about these public policy related entities, but also help they can be thinking about how can they be working or what kinds of things could the federal government be doing to provide better support to the private sector? So that's what I'm working on now. And it's been a lot of fun. Sounds great. Will, I appreciate the time and conversation as always. Now everybody else gets a glimpse into what it's like when we're sitting around over a cup of coffee. I promise you, this is exactly how this goes. I, I appreciate the time as always. Hey, buddy, it's always a pleasure. And thanks for highlighting these important issues because a lot of times people think, oh, this doesn't matter to me. Well, everybody who lived on the East Coast and that couldn't fill up their car, they realized it did. And everybody who was cold in Texas realized it did. Oh, and, and by the way, I'll just leave it with this. Imagine if in 1942, FDR could place bombs in the warehouses of places that made the German planes and tanks. Yep. Would FDR have done that? Yes, of course he would, right? And so to think that our adversaries wouldn't lay in wait in some of our critical infrastructure that we need to respond. And it may not be because they want to invade America. It may be because the Chinese want to invade Taiwan and they're going to turn our lights out so that we get caught up or we can't move cars and move product and we get caught up in a problem while they're doing something else. That's going to have tectonic impacts on everyone. And so these are important issues that, that are going to affect all of us. And guess what? Uh, you need to make sure your kids are learning about this kind of stuff because it's only going to get more complicated. The last thing I'll say before we close it out, I love it. Love the explanation. But you can also solve for that colonial pipeline issue if uh, you were driving around in an F-150 Lightning. Just saying, we can solve it on the electric side in part. <laughs> yeah, but you know, but hey, guess what? You need that gas power that created the charge in order to charge that car, right? So you it's know, all connected. Uh, there's yeah, no, there's no doubt connected. about it. It's 
it's all connected. All the above energy strategy. That's right. That's right. We uh, below two, but uh, all the above and below is where we're going to go. But thanks, Will. I appreciate it. (laughs) Good to see you, buddy. We hope you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights on energy policy. To learn more about EEI and the electric power industry, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.